This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. Things I thought were we were done with in the United States are recurring. This is a podcast about two things helping those with urgent needs in front of us today, and improving the road so others can walk it safely in the future. Welcome to The Better Samaritan, where we are learning how to do good better. I'm Kent Annan, co-director of the Humanitarian Disaster Institute at Wheaton College. I'm joined by my colleagues Jamie Aiton and Laura Finch to explore how we can more effectively love our neighbors, from everyday acts of kindness to navigating the most complex humanitarian challenges facing the church and society today. Today we're talking with Philip Yancey, one of the best-selling Christian authors of recent decades, and he's someone all of us admire for the way he approaches questions of uh, doubt and suffering and faith and hope. Today we're talking specifically about his most recent book, Where the Light Fell. Uh, Philip, we're so grateful that you're here with us today. Thank you very much, Kent. Uh, Philip, I sat down to read this book. I'll start with a confession. You're, uh, I don't know if you label yourself a confessional writer, but you know, you're a very honest writer. So I thought I should start honestly. I read the book and I was kind of feeling comfortable and thought, oh, this will be great to sort of look back at Philip's career. I'm such an admirer um, of your writing and it's influenced me a lot as so many other people. And I sat down and thought it would be comfortable retrospective. Instead, I was uncomfortable in the very best Philip Yancey way from the very beginning, (laughs) (laughs) from beginning to the very last page. And um, just wanted to start by thanking you again for the kind of writing you do that is so uh, unflinching and honest and searching uh, in the very best way. So thank you for writing this book. Hmm. Well, you can imagine how uncomfortable I was revealing <laughs> secrets that I haven't told in 40 years or so of writing. So, But it turned out to be a, a therapeutic task for me, actually, kind of stitching together my past. And clearly, uh, God's grace is what somehow made uh, order out of a very disordered upbringing. And I'm, I'm so grateful for that. And my career really has been trying to sort out what I should have kept and what I should have discarded from a pretty mixed up childhood church and family. Yes. And what do you think, I mean, you tell the story in the book and some people have read it and some people not yet. And you talk about your relationship with your, um, with your father who died when you were just a baby, just very young. And then your mother, um, there's so many things to explore, but can you talk a little bit about that relationship with your mother that you explore uh, in this book and how that influenced you ways in ways that you've kept unpacking throughout your your books even if unconsciously or you know um, behind the scenes in ways at times well my mother was a wounded person she came from a rather dysfunctional family herself in uh, fairly poor circumstances in a row house in philadelphia there was not a lot of grace or forgiveness in that family in fact, uh, in one scene, her mother said to her, when she, when my mother apologized as a little girl, her mother said, you couldn't possibly be sorry. If you were sorry, you wouldn't have done it in the first place, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is kind of a catch-22. <laughs> and um, as the 
as the daughters particularly grew older, they were required to stay at home, turn over all their earnings and uh, support the rest of the family. My mother found a ticket out of that family through meeting a sailor, my father, who was from Atlanta, Georgia, a rather genteel Southern family. And they got married fairly quickly and went across the country looking for a place for him to pastor a church that didn't work out. He ended up back in Atlanta and they had planned to be missionaries. Everything looked like it was going great. They had 5,000 people on a list who were praying for them, would, were willing to support them. They wanted to go to Africa as missionaries. And then my father got polio. He was in an iron lung for two months. And then there was an, there was an act of faith. The people who were closest to him, including my mother, wanted him to be healed, believed he would be healed. Why would God possibly take, in quotes, um, a young 23-year-old person who was so committed? And so they had him removed from the iron lung. And for a few weeks, he, he did show some re signs of recovery, and then he died. I didn't find out that secret, the secret of the attempted faith healing until I was in college. And it explains so much because you can imagine the devastation that my mother felt uh, participating in a decision that turned out to be fatally wrong. And then she wanted to atone for that, as it were, by living out his life through my brother and, and me. And that didn't work out so well in her in her mind. I thought it worked out pretty well. but. <laughs> So there was a, I learned early on that what you believe about certain things makes a big difference, theological belief. The people who had him removed from the iron lung were his friends. They loved him, they supported him, but they were fatally wrong. They took a prerogative that we don't really have to take, decide when a person's gonna be healed, when they're not, mm -hmm. when a person's gonna die and when they're not. And then my mother later had a, a pretty rigid theology, uh, a perfectionist theology. She really believed that you could you could go without sin for years and years. Mm -hmm. It's hard to win an argument with your mother as a teenager when she hasn't sinned for, <laughs> yes. for years and years. <laughs> and uh, we were we thought we were just being kind of normal adolescent boys, but as we started being more individualistic and making our own decisions and choices that she didn't approve of. In a lot of ways, she kind of went off the rails, and there was that terrible scene where, in effect, she cursed my brother for going to Wheaton College and said mm -hmm. she would pray that God would break him in, in very uh, tragic ways. And that prophecy became fulfilled. He, he had to drop out of Wheaton his last semester and was diagnosed chronic paranoid schizophrenic. So that's the story of my family. And I um, certainly regretted parts of it for most of my life. But I must say, Kent and Laura, that when I wrote this memoir, I realized that it all, that nothing got wasted. Even the mm -hmm. strict upbringing I had, I'm grateful for some aspects of that. I, I survived. My lips were untainted by cigarettes and alcohol and some of those things, which is a good thing. And uh, certainly no drugs or or unwanted pregnancies that a lot of parents have to worry about their teenagers. When you're raised in a fundamentalist church, you've got different mm. 
different expressions of deviance that aren't quite as yeah, aren't quite as destructive. Mm-hmm. And then I had the the sad example of my brother choosing another path, rebelling against that church, and um, not doing not doing so in healthy ways. Mm-hmm. And he's he's paid a lot of consequences over the years. Mm-hmm. But I had the I had the strong sense that uh, God was with me, kind of underground. Hmm. steering me in ways that I didn't always appreciate at the time. But um, looking back with great gratitude for for my life and, and uh, so much of my career is, is a matter of going going back and figuring out what I believe and the memoir where the light veil really tells the story of why I believe it or how I believe it, mm-hmm. why I came to that place. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, you've been writing since then, of course, for about 50 years, but all that time you had resisted recording this story. And mm. I'm just wondering if that was a conscious choice. It was. Family members are are portrayed very realistically in the book, my mother being one of them. She's 97 years old. And I've waited a long time to tell these stories. But I also saw that things I thought were we were done with in the United States are recurring. So I grew up in Atlanta in the 1960s. Civil rights movement was the front page news every day. Martin Luther King was our most famous resident. And there was a lot of resistance. My church was a racist church, actively opposed, wouldn't allow African-Americans to enter the door, which is hard to believe, I know. So that you've got those divisions, you've got the political divisions, you've got uh, uh, poverty and uh, global crises. You guys know about that. That's your business. <laughs> and and we were just discovering those things in the '60s. That you know we're coming off the triumph of World War II when America saved the world. You know, and and then suddenly these hippies appeared and said, "Wait a minute! You know, it's not that black and white." There are a lot of problems left, and actually your country caused some of them, and loud protests against Vietnam and and, and uh, backlashes, and that, all that was very prominent in the 60s. And then here we are in the 2020s, 50, 60 years later, and, and some of those same problems are still with us, Black Lives mm-hmm. Matter and women's issues and global poverty and now climate change and other things too. How do you, uh, I, I've appreciated it in this book and also in previous books and, and the way you just spoke about it, um, in this moment when, with, you know, recurring racial tension, like you said, I've appreciated that you don't seem to have a defensiveness uh, when you come to thinking about racism in your past and your communities past. What advice do you have for people today? How can, it seems like often people's defensiveness comes up quickly. As I read your book, uh, this memoir, I was thinking, oh, this this is something that really resonates again today. Um, how do we look at that and confess past sins and seek reconciliation? Can you talk a little bit more about what you learned in that process and how that might carry over into the moment uh, right now? That's a great question, Kent. I have a I met a friend a few years ago who was raised as the son of Pentecostal missionaries in Brazil very conservative. And then he came to the United States as a college student. I think it was Georgetown and then Harvard, where he went and got a law degree. And he started working for various political organizations, first very conservative ones, 
and then very liberal ones like uh, NOW, the National Organization for Women, uh, pro-choice and uh, racial justice issues. And he is not a believer today. He would not call himself a Christian, but he was deeply influenced and, and respects that a lot of good work is done by Christians. And he said to me, what I miss most is that in today's culture, cancel culture, there's, there's no redemption. Once you've made a, once you've crossed a line, made a mistake, you can't come back. Uh, so Black Lives mm -hmm. Matter, the protests are, are angry and you've got the two groups yelling at each other. And in the 60s, in, in my generation, they were, there was an overarching moral compass to the black protests for sure. They were led mostly by by clergy, Martin Luther King, John Lewis, Ralph Carmichael, um, Jesse Jackson even. And Martin Luther King was so clear that yes, we do want the laws to change, but more than that, we want hearts to change. Mm -hmm. We can force white people to stop lynching black people. We can force white people to allow us in their restaurants but we can't force them to love us. That's a, that's a change of the heart. And that's really my goal, the beloved community. And I don't hear language like that today. And it, in my day, it was, a, it was a crisis of faith for me, frankly, when I found out that the, the church had really deceived me about race because they taught blatantly that uh, people of color were cursed by God back in the curse of Ham, this blasphemous interpretation of Genesis 9, then I realized that, that they were wrong. And I started thinking, well, if they're wrong about race, maybe they're wrong about the Bible, maybe they're wrong about Jesus. And I had to put my faith in suspension for a while and then sort out what was true, what mm -hmm. I believed to be true and biblical and, and what was not. So today, it doesn't seem like there's a, a path to repentance and mm. redemption, not in Christian terms, at least. I mean, sometimes you have these people who did things 30 years ago and they'll quickly apologize and, and uh, want life to go on. But it, it's hard because uh, right. Christians do have a clear path of repentance and forgiveness and redemption. But a canceled culture doesn't necessarily subscribe to that. And once you're blackballed, you're kind of blackballed in today's culture, which is, which only increases hostility. If you can't get over it, then you can't get over it. You'll have two sides just shouting at each other. Right. And, you know, you mentioned at one point um, that your, your mother um, or just, you know, your atmosphere in general, there was, there was so much to fear. Um, and mm. I, I wonder about this notion that we we hear kind of undercurrents of it today, that God really needs us to protect the reputation of the church by by not airing dirty laundry. You know, you mentioned something that the former president of your Bible college said, um, you know, I would never write the juicy bits that I know about other people in Christian ministry because of the pain it would cause. What do you make of that trend or that that idea that Jesus needs us to protect his reputation. Well, we're not doing a very good job, are we? Every, <laughs> every scandal in the church somehow ends up on the front page of newspapers. 
As a writer, I guess I, I look back to the Bible. I don't know of a more honest book. When you think about it, the giants, the true giants in the Bible are people like Moses, who was a murderer, had an pr anger problem. Right. David, who was a murderer and adulterer. Peter, who was a betrayer. Saul, who was a human rights abuser, you know, <laughs> and these are the best, you know, those are the giants. And the Bible um, doesn't, doesn't gloss over their faults, their flaws, but it does show there is a path to forgiveness and there's a path to restoration. Saul became Paul, the greatest missionary of all time. What, and it's as if God went out of his way to remove any excuses we might have, even fallen leaders in the church mm -hmm. might have saying, well, I'm, yeah. I'm set aside and I'm worthless now, I'm useless. I'm sure Saul felt, felt that way for a few months there while he's recovering his eyesight and trying to figure out his future. Sure. But uh, God is into the redemption business. Well said. Um, this is skipping a little bit back to skipping topics slightly, but something I was thinking about just as I admire you as a writer. Um, reading through this, I'd wondered how much writing and re and I don't have a great way to ask this, so I might ramble slightly, but you know, writing and rewriting, is that part of a pathway to grace for you? Uh, the reason I ask is I find I, as I go through rewriting, I become more honest. My, shrillness or judgmentalism can go away slightly i can listen a little bit more deeply and i was thinking that especially as i read about this arc uh, with your mother in the book and i thought at times you were feeling more grace to her than i was as a reader you know in the relation in the <laughs> yes, relationship true. with your in the relationship with your brother especially and that led me to think about this like is writing it's itself for you been part of this journey and the theme of grace? And if so, in what ways? No one's asked that question before. It's, it's a great question. I think you're right. Um, I tried in the editing process to avoid commentary. I've written so many mm. books that are kind of the same style. I call it a personal pilgrimage essay style where I'm trying to come to terms with who Jesus is, what grace mm -hmm. is, what the Old Testament is, things like that. And so it's natural for me to kind of jump out of the narrative and comment, well, the church wasn't that bad. It had these good aspects. And I had some wise editors who said, people don't want to read an essay in a narrative. You got mm -hmm. to just right. tell the story, tell the story, tell the story. <laughs> and um, so in the editing process, I tried to cut out asides my wife um, and other, a few other people who, who know the people involved in the story were helpful to me and, and felt that I kind of bent over backwards to be compassionate. And that's how I felt because as I explored, for example, my mother's background, I realized that her family was probably harsher than the family she headed up as a widow and I had sympathy for her. I had compassion for her. I, I really do. She kept saying I did the best I could. And I actually believe that. I think yeah. she did the best that she could. She was not equipped. She was handed a, a terrible hand, so yes. to speak. Um, mm -hmm. And 
she never got professional help on sorting out her own feelings of betrayal. And, and I wrote a book called Disappointment with God. She had a right to be furious at God. You know, she was giving everything, was going to be a missionary. And then wham, her life got completely derailed. And what I've learned as a writer is that the Bible gives us a lot of a lot of tools to come to terms with that. I look at the Lamentations, I look at the Psalms of Lament, between a third and a half of them. And when disaster happens, um, as you guys know very well, it doesn't help just to smile and say everything will be all right <laughs> someday. Uh, so you guys may have read the book by Kate Bowler, Everything Happens for mm -hmm. a Reason and Other Lies, I've been told, you know. Mm -hmm. And often, it's easy for Christians to put kind of a smiley band-aid on problems and, and that doesn't right. help. Uh, the Bible again is so honest and forthright about the brokenness of our planet and of us, each of us as individuals. You got to start there if you're going to, if you're going to work toward healing. And I think my mother really didn't have the, the wherewithal uh, to seek that that painful process of facing into it and then finding healing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you've said that she has not read your other books. Do you think she'll read this one? I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> she actually, she won't read it um, in a traditional way. She has macular degeneration just in the last mm -hmm. couple of years, so she, she can't really read. Um, she will hear some parts of it, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. and actually, to my shock, I must say, after I turned into this book manuscript, which would have been in, in the spring of 2021, some things happened. I got the two, the two of them, my mother and brother, on a telephone call twice. First time wow. either had heard the mm -hmm. other's voice in 51 years. Wow. And it didn't go particularly well. She was semi apologizing, but not quite. And he was pretty stubbornly not responsive. <laughs> but even since then, uh, even this week, as we're talking, uh, he has written her a three letter or three word note that just said, I forgive you, wow. which, wow. which is astonishing because it he's, is. he, if you read the, the memoir, I mean, when I finished it, I thought this will never change. And yeah. yet here we are, just as the book is being published and change still happens. So maybe it's a good thing that I published it while my mother was still living because the story isn't over and, and grace, grace can be amazing, right? Hmm. Indeed. Absolutely. Wow, that really is amazing to hear uh, for uh, encouraging everybody to read this memoir who's listening, but that's that's yeah. not necessarily without, without grace, as you said, Philip. That's, that's not where one sees the story ending. Um, but what a, what a fitting next step. Um, again, jump, jumping from this, because I feel like so many of these themes are, you know, you're looking back at a lifetime, but they're so resonant today. The, as you talked about your father's death and this sort of relationship between faith and science, it's quite an opening where one pictures someone in a, in a hospital bed with COVID almost going through the exact mm -hmm. same uh, situation today. How have you thought, like, what, what do you think as you watch um, 
uh, a portion of conservative Christianity kind of wrestling with this question of faith and science. You know, was that on your mind as you told this story? I, I don't know how far into writing the memoir, writing about your father, you were at that stage, but would love to hear your thoughts on the relationship of faith and science uh, in light of that and in light of COVID. It just totally baffles me, Kent. I, I grew up and I had uh, pertussis, whooping cough. I had measles. I had mumps. We all did back in the 1950s. And then when the polio vaccine came along, it was like a miracle dropped from the skies. Mm -hmm. 50,000 people a year were either paralyzed or dying of that disease, mostly children. And it was, it stirred up because of the children, it stirred up even deeper fears than, than the flu pandemic, coronavirus pandemic has now. And, and then suddenly you could make yourself immune to it. It, it was mm -hmm. just amazing. Now in early samples of the vaccine, several thousand children did have some symptoms of polio and some with lasting paralysis. So there's always a risk, but that's how science progresses. It refines and refines and refines. And because I travel overseas, I've seen the effect of, of, uh, of course, smallpox and polio, two diseases. One's been completely eliminated. Another one, polio, mm -hmm. is almost eliminated. And now there may be a malaria vaccine. To me, these are, these are triumphs that are almost miraculous mm -hmm. <laughs> in their effect. Yes. So the idea of uh, and, and when you study medical history, the whole idea of quarantine used to be much more fiercely imposed. We're not the really? first time we've, people have faced quarantines. And you go back during the pandemic, I, I did a modern paraphrase of John Donne's devotions, which he wrote during the Black Plague of London. And you see what people did in those days. Uh, one third of London died. And one third of London fled the city. They were quarantined themselves and just went out into the country somewhere where they thought the air would be cleaner and more pure. So the response uh, and the fact that Christians have been at the forefront in many cases of the response against science, questioning some of these rules about social distancing or wearing masks or questioning vaccines in general, I just shake my head and uh, I don't understand it. And, and one thing that makes me saddest is here we have something that affects virtually everybody on the entire planet, one way or another, either directly or indirectly. And what an opportunity for, for the church to show what Paul calls in 2 Corinthians 1, the father of compassion, the God of all comfort. And instead, we've heard so much shrill fear and anger from the Christian community. Mm -hmm. And we have forfeited a chance to be representatives of that God of all comfort and father of compassion. And that makes me very sad um, because I think looking back, the church isn't going to, it's not going to be a proud moment in the history of the church. Mm -hmm. Yes, indeed. As we've had some, some like Francis Collins helping to lead the way, but then this other countercurrent, discouraging indeed, <laughs> to put it to put it mildly. Mm. Um, we'd like to end these conversations just ask, ask what we call a quick five.
questions, um, the uh, ideas of what you're reading, ideas that you could pass along. So we'll tra transition into this and then just ask a final question after these quick five. Um, sure. So I wanted to ask, uh, what is a book that you're enjoying that you've either recently read or are currently reading? Paul, a bi biography by N.T. Wright. I've read a number of Tom Wright's books and some take a lot of work and some he intentionally makes kind of lightweight and easy reading. This is a beautiful combination. It's, it's, it has this impeccable scholarship, but it reads like a novel. Paul's life was like a novel. <laughs> and so uh, I thoroughly enjoyed that one. How about a book you've shared more than others? A book you particularly I'm often, like to share with others. Right. I'm often um, asked to speak to writers or end up in writers groups. And if I chose one writer for them to enjoy, it would be Frederick Buechner because he, he writes about, he's still living, he's in his 90s now, and half of the books he's written are fiction and half are nonfiction, but it's hard to tell the difference because he uses the techniques of fiction to enliven his nonfiction and his theology reads like a murder mystery, which mm. in a way theology is a little bit like a murder mystery, <laughs> um, trying to figure out who done it, you know? And uh, so there are various collections of, of Buechner's works. The one that I love because it's so short and so comprehensive is a little book called Telling the Truth based on a series of lectures he gave it at Yale on uh, the, the gospel as tragedy, comedy, and fairy tale. He just capsulizes the entire Bible message in, in those three scenes. You know, he does all that so well. And then just sentence to sentence, he is uh, amazing to amazing to read. He's a master. And he was a mentor to me in writing this memoir, actually, because um, we've had numerous conversations about it. He His life was dominated by the fact that his father committed suicide when he was something like 12 years old. And he hesitated to write about it for decades and until he finally realized out of fear of his mother and he finally realized i can't write about her experience but i can write about my experience it happened it changed my life i i must have that she can't keep me from writing these personal stories mm -hmm. and he kept encouraging me and and uh finally talked me into it <laughs> yeah. oh, that's an interesting parallel now to think yes. about both of your both of your writing uh, about those things um, is there a, an app, a productivity method, something you're using these days that you uh, especially appreciate and you, you'd just like to recommend to other people? Uh, something you have that helps you in travel, although all of us are traveling less these days. Kent, two months ago, <laughs> less than two months ago, I got my very first smartphone. Okay. There you can recommend right. a smartphone. These, smartphone. These, 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 these might catch on. These might catch you on. <laughs> I started with an iPhone 7, and I'm, that's where I am now. My wife is up to 13 or whatever it is now. But uh, I try to stay away from, from apps. I, uh, I'm on a, a desktop computer all day long, every day. And the last thing I want to do is repeat that with clumsy fingers and a tiny screen. So <laughs> I don't do it. The only app I do, and I would recommend that, is the Starbucks app because occasionally it there speeds up my service. 
Yeah. And I collect those stars. It's so fun collecting the stars. It is. Okay. How about a recent um, highlight from something you're listening to, maybe music, a particular um, piece of music that's speaking to you right now or something, something related in the, in the entertainment realm? Well, once again, um, you're talking to a Neanderthal here because I listen to classical music all day long. And somebody sent me a piece that I had not heard before. Normally, I don't listen to anything written past not like 1915 or so. That's kind of on my limit. Anything beyond that is is too dissonant for me. So I stick yes. with the romantics and yes. the classics. Mm -hmm. But somebody sent me this rather worshipful piece. Uh, I think I have it right. Dona. Nobis Pachem yes. by Art, A-A-R-T, with some funny little symbols in it. He's what Finnish maybe as a composer. And uh, I always have classical music on in the background as I'm writing. And it, it it's great background music. It's, it's vocal. And I had to stop several times and just tune in and listen to it. Uh, beautiful piece. Evidently, you know it, Laura? Yes, yeah, it's it's gorgeous, and that's just the kind of thing I was hoping you would recommend because of course, so <laughs> many of us are, you know, we're working, we're writing, and we're what should I listen to? And I don't want it to have words, and um, so I will definitely be pulling that up. Okay, I don't know it, so I will be I will be looking yeah. it up and listening to it soon. And my go yeah. my go to pieces on on writing are. Uh, lists, transcendental etudes, or uh, okay. honest, or years of pilgrimage, honest de pilgrimage, or Beethoven's late quartets. Those are my top of the line. When I'm having a really hard day, I put one of those on, and it gets better so quickly. And these are these are CDs that you use. CDs are now they're now they're digitally on on my computer, so yeah. I just push okay. a button and there they are. There you go. We can make a Philip Yancey playlist, <laughs> right? <laughs> and then uh, last last question along this line: What do you like to do to renew your uh, mind and body? I answered that question for all time in 1992 when I moved from downtown Chicago to Colorado. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. Because all I have to do is walk out by a yard. In fact, <laughs> I looked out 10 seconds ago and there's a, a deer munching the grass in my backyard. Yeah. Uh, two weeks ago, a bull elk charged my car, stuck his <laughs> antlers through my fenders. No way. Did $3,500 worth of damage. Oh my goodness. And we've got these blue skies. It's in the, the last vestiges of fall. So mm -hmm. during the pandemic, my wife and I started just hiking, 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 because you could do that. We would wear the masks, but Colorado is a big state with with not too many people in it. And that's, that is how I get recharged. Just remembering that we're just little creatures on one tiny little planet in the universe. And that's, that's good to remind us who God is. And it's good to remind us who, who we are. Thank you, Philip. So just to close, I wanted to read the, Last two paragraphs, which were beautiful in your memoir uh, here, again, where the light fell, uh, and then just see if you have any last thoughts for, you know, a final thought for our listener, but here are the last couple of paragraphs. As a boy wandering in the woods, 
a teenager constructing a psychic survival shell, a lovesick college student running from the hound of heaven. In all those places, I felt what T.S. Eliot called a tremor of bliss, a wink of heaven, a whisper. I came to love God out of gratitude, not fear. Above all else, grace is a gift, one I cannot stop writing about until my story ends. Yeah, I, there are mysteries to grace. I don't know why God chose me at the time he did. I, I wasn't seeking God. In many ways, I was pushing away because it, the image of God had been distorted by the church. But God did reach out with grace in a miraculous way and change my life forever. And the sense I had in exploring pain from my from my past, the, the wounds are, the scars are there, the wounds are gone. Scars are still there, but God can, God can weave those broken places into health. And I, I feel that very deeply as I look back on a long and happy career writing, trying to serve God in that kind of indirect way. And I concluded as I looked back over all the pieces of my life that nothing got wasted. They were all part of the story that God was writing. And that's true of every one of us. And God wants to complete that story in a, in a redemptive way. And it can happen. And, and I'm very grateful that it did happen. Well, thank you, Philip, for your time. Thank you for writing your story. And thank you nice. for inviting all of us into the story of God's grace. We're deeply, deeply grateful. Great. Great talking to both of you. Good being with you. Thanks for listening to the Better Samaritan podcast. You can find links to the things we mentioned during this episode in the show notes. And special thanks to The Brilliance for this fantastic music theme. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and subscribe. You can also follow the Humanitarian Disaster Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'll see you next week as we continue learning to do good better.